0: Celebrate Pride Month with TVO. Visit tvo.me/pride for documentaries, kid shows, and educational resources. Discover inspiring stories of love, friendship, and resilience. For more in-depth perspectives and interesting stories, sign up for our daily newsletter at tvo.org/daily. It's been a common refrain in this pandemic, we are all in it together. But even as the empirical truth of that's come under scrutiny, it begs further questions for the philosophically inclined, such as, weren't we always? Isn't that the promise of a democratic society? Michael Sandel is a professor of philosophy at Harvard University, and his new book argues that a particular mindset has undermined that togetherness. It's called the tyranny of merit. What's become of the common good? And Professor Sandell joins us now from Brookline, Massachusetts, just outside Boston. And it's so good to see you again. Last time you were actually here in the studio, but um, COVID being what it is, we talk on satellite now. It's great to see you again, though, anyway.
1: It's great to be back, Steve. Great to be with you.
0: like to start reading an excerpt of your book, which will set us on the path for the future discussion. The mainstream parties and governing elites, you write, who find themselves the target of populist protest, struggle to make sense of it. They typically diagnose the discontent in one of two ways, as animus against immigrants and racial and ethnic minorities, or as anxiety in the face of globalization and technological change. Both diagnoses miss something important. Let's start there. What do they miss?
1: What they miss are the changing attitudes towards success and failure that have accompanied the deepening inequalities of recent decades. For decades, the divide between winners and losers has been deepening, Steve, poisoning our politics, driving us apart. This has partly to do with the deepening inequalities of income and wealth. But it's about more than just economics. It's also about changing attitudes, I think, towards success and failure. Somehow those who've landed on top, have come to believe that their success is their own doing, the measure of their merit, and that by implication, those who struggle, those who've been left behind, have no one to blame but themselves. And this, this meritocratic hubris, as I call it, I think, has contributed to the resentments felt by a great many working people who feel looked down upon by elites
0: this is something that former president obama tried to get at in that line when he said you didn't build it when he was talking about business people right he he was trying right. to convey a sense that you didn't do it all by yourself there was a lot more behind you that helped
1: yes he was trying to do it but alas it was not terribly effective and he basically uh, uh, i think shied away from that as a theme uh, subsequently but there is a lot of truth in what he was trying to say which is this, the belief among the successful that my success is my own doing, it leads the successful to inhale too deeply (laughs) their own success, (laughs) to forget the luck and good fortune that helped them on their way, and also to forget their indebtedness to family, to community, to country, to the times in which we all happen to live, and, and so this, I think, is this shift in attitudes is necessary for we're really to come to grips with the sources of anger and resentment that have created such deep polarization in our politics.
0: I know you've run into this criticism before, and I'll get you to speak to it now, because it does, and I know you know this, it does feel passing strange for a Harvard philosophy professor <laughs> to be arguing against merit, which is you know, which which you would think would be a great principle upon which to build a harmonious society. Surely merit is better than nepotism. Surely merit is better than, you know, political patronage. But go ahead, take us that next level down and tell us why you're okay standing where you are.
1: Right. It is better than those things, Steve. Of course you're right. And if I have to go in for a a heart surgery, I want a very well-qualified surgeon to do the operation. So merit in the sense of uh, placing people in jobs who are well qualified for them that's a good thing but meritocracy is a way of organizing a society and an and an economy is a way of allocating rewards and also social recognition meritocracy has a dark side and the dark side is that meritocracy is corrosive of the common good. It generates hubris among the winners and humiliation among those left behind because what it says is that where we land reflects what we deserve. We easily assume that the money people make is the measure of their contribution to the common good, but this is a mistake. And when it's combined with the sense of my success being my due, a sense of, of entitlement, then, it, it, then the dark side emerges and those left behind rightly complain that they're being looked down upon, that their contributions are not valued, honored or respected.
0: And do we infer that the logical extension of that phenomenon you just described uh, happened three and three quarter years ago, the election of Donald Trump?
1: Exactly. In fact, I first began thinking about this book, Steve, trying to make sense of the backlash against elites that really shook our political world in 2016. First, there was Brexit in Britain, which actually expressed some similar sentiments to the ones we've been discussing. And then there was the election of Donald Trump, And people, especially governing elites, were shocked by the success of Donald Trump. They They didn't hear, they didn't sense the deep resentments that had been building for some time as they, the governing elites, and here I include Democrats and Republicans, center left and center right parties, They had pursued a kind of market-driven globalization that produced deepening inequalities. But when it came time to confronting those inequalities, what they offered was the promise of individual upward mobility through higher education. If you want to compete and win in the global economy, they said, Go to college, get a degree, then you too may be able to climb the ladder of success. But what this neglected was that the rungs on the ladder were growing further and further apart. And the attitudes towards success and failure were hardening in a way that disparaged those who didn't make it. And this, I think, planted the seeds for the anger that Donald Trump managed very successfully to exploit. And, and this is where we are today.
0: Well, I do remember uh-huh. when he was campaigning, whatever, four years ago, uh, he said, the non-educated, I love the non-educated. And you right. tell us in the book that, that in some respects, they have become the last acceptable prejudice, disdain for the uneducated. Is right. post-secondary education no longer the ticket to a better life in your country?
1: Well, what we've done because of this meritocratic promise, this rhetoric of rising, if chances are equal, the slogan goes, um, everyone should be able to rise as far as his or her talents and efforts will take them. So, this rhetoric of rising is inspiring in one way. It says we believe there should be no barriers to achievement, and certainly there should not be. But it puts enormous emphasis on getting a, a college degree, a university degree. Now, in the face of it, who could be against encouraging uh, uh, and broadening access to higher education? I certainly would not argue against that. But there was an insult implicit in that political message, in that promise. And the insult was, if you didn't go to university and if you're not flourishing, in the new economy, your failure must be your fault. This has led to, inadvertently, led to the kind of credentialist prejudice uh, that that you were referring to, and that I think is very much part of the resentment and anger and sense of grievance. In this case, legitimate grievance that a large part of the population feels. We easily forget that most people don't have a four-year university degree, not in the US, not in, uh, I I, I believe that's the case in Canada. You'll tell me if I'm wrong about that. No, you're right. And not in, in Britain or in most European countries. So it's a mistake to, it's even a kind of folly, Steve, I think, to create an economy that sets as a necessary condition of dignified work and a decent life a four-year university degree that most people don't have and may not need for the work they do.
0: Well, that's absolutely accurate, what you just said, but it is not accurate when it comes to describing our parliaments, our houses of representatives, our senates, uh, and so on and so forth. You've talked about this credentialism in your book, and and now that it has seeped into the areas where our decision-makers work, how has that changed the way the govern and the governed um, relate to each other.
1: It's very striking, Steve, and we seldom reflect on it. I didn't before I did the research for this book. Overwhelmingly, our parliaments and executive branches of government are dominated by people with four-year university degrees to such an extent that uh, essentially the credentialed few are governing the uncredentialed many, where credential is defined by having a four-year university diploma. Now, on the face of it, we might say, well, isn't it a good thing that the best educated people should govern? Well, I would say not necessarily. Not necessarily. If you believe that technocratic expertise is the only virtue for good government, then maybe the answer is yes. But I think that in itself, that assumption is a meritocratic conceit. What it takes to govern well in a democratic society is not only technocratic expertise, but, well, Aristotle called it practical wisdom, a sense of judgment, and also... Uh, the ability to identify with the common good and with people from different walks of life. So from this point of view, the fact that we have only university graduates, for the most part, uh, dominating parliaments and congresses in democratic society, that's a problem. And it's a problem that that has as one of its consequences that very few working people are members of parliament or serving in the executive. The dominance of those with university degrees in parliaments now approaches what it was back in the 19th century, before universal suffrage came in. During the, the mid 20th century, there was quite a substantial um, participation in parliaments, in representative government, by people who hadn't been to university, people who came from working class backgrounds, but that is less and less the case, and the shift has taken place most dramatically over the same four-decade period that coincides with the market-driven globalization and the meritocratic attitudes towards success and failure.
0: I'm trying to remember, was it William F. Buckley who said, give me the first hundred names in any phone book in any city to govern us as opposed to, and don't take this the wrong way. I think he said, you know, the top hundred professors at Harvard University or something like that anyway.
1: Yes, though that wasn't because he, he was a small D Democrat. That's because I think he was a Yale
0: man and didn't like Harvard. <laughs> okay, well done. Um Back on politics here for a second, you know, I, I can't remember who said it, but, but some American citizen, ordinary citizen from a red state, said, I've lost touch with the Democratic Party because I get the feeling they're more interested in clinking glasses with Steven Spielberg at a fundraiser than talking to me about my life. The Democratic Party always used to represent the ordinary working man and woman. What happened there?
1: Yeah, well, in recent decades, that changed. Steve, it changed uh, gradually but faithfully, so that by 2016, the Democratic Party was more attuned to the concerns, to the interests, to the mores, to the values, to the attitudes and outlooks of the professional classes, the elites, the well-educated classes, than to the blue-collar voters who were once the a central part of the constituency of the Democratic Party, and there's been education is now one of the deepest divides in American politics. Um, so the, those back in 2016, those with a college education went heavily for Hillary Clinton. Those uh, those without a college education. Uh, especially white working class men without a college education, went overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. And we saw a similar pattern in Britain in the Brexit vote. So this has changed. It used to be that the Democratic Party, just as you say, was the party of working people standing up against elites, against the privilege, safeguarding their interests, uh, reflecting their Values. But as the Democratic Party became the party of the professional classes, they alienated uh, working people, many of whom now uh, support Trump. And I don't think the Democratic Party will be able to rebound until it figures out how to reconnect with working people. And I think that will require rethinking the meritocratic hubris that has come to inform. The, the credentialed classes with which the Democratic Party has become so closely aligned.
0: Well, I do wonder what role post-secondary education can play in making that happen. And to that end, let me put an argument to you that you raise in the book and see how we do with this. You know, there are a lot of people who get into Harvard or Yale or, or you know, Stanford or UCLA, whatever, who are the children of, right? These are the so-called legacy enrollees at these universities. And and they pay a good They pay a good buck in order to be able to go to the university that their father or mother might have gone to. Is it worth maintaining that system and having those folks overpay so that the university can realize more revenue and potentially spend that money to help those who maybe don't merit or who aren't rich enough in order to attend those post-secondary institutions? Does that help level the playing field in a way that you would approve?
1: Well, I certainly think that it's important and noble and laudable for affluent uh, universities, including the one where I teach, to provide generous financial aid policies so that no student who is admitted on the basis of their academic promise uh, shall be excluded because they can't afford to pay. That is a great and noble undertaking. The question is how to accumulate the funds that make that possible. And typically it's through private fundraising, um, including other means. As a result, the private universities in the U.S. that rely heavily on uh, private donations and and philanthropy do give uh, a leg up in admissions to the children of alumni in hopes that the favor will be repaid. And some give give an edge in admissions to children of wealthy donors, even who are not alums. So this, I think, this is a tricky uh, question. Ideally, I would like there not to be an advantage for legacy admissions, but step back and look at the overall result. Here, I'm not talking about Harvard specifically, but uh, the Ivy League and, and highly selective uh, group of universities in the United States. Despite their generous financial aid policies, the the number of students in these places who come from the top 1% is greater than the number of students in attendance from the entire bottom half of the country combined. So even the generous financial aid policies have left us with this unequal access. And so I I think there's reason to reconsider um, just how we go about recruiting and enrolling uh, students, especially those who may be the first uh, in their family, first generation students to attend college.
0: Well, if merit is tyrannical, what should we replace it with?
1: We should shift the whole focus of our politics away from the rhetoric of rising, away from thinking that the solution to inequality is to promise individual upward mobility through higher education. We should focus less on arming people for meritocratic combat, And focus more on making life better for people who make valuable contributions through the work they do, the families they raise, the communities they serve, even though they may not have the lustrous credentials that a meritocratic society so prizes. And the way I would do this, the way I think we should shift the terms of public discourse, Steve, is to put the dignity of work rather than individual upward mobility. The dignity of work right at the center of our politics. Now, people in different parties and of different uh, ideological persuasions will inevitably disagree about what it means in practice to renew and to respect the dignity of work. But that's the debate we should be having. How to accord greater rewards, economic rewards, but also A greater measure of social recognition and esteem to people who make valuable contributions to the common good, but who in our current uh, system are underpaid and also not recognized, not appreciated for the contributions they make. That should be the first question of our politics.
0: I wonder if this pandemic is helping realize that vision. I think people today are looking at truck drivers differently, nurses differently, the people who stock the shelves of our supermarkets differently. Do you think the pandemic may actually help get us where you want to go? It's possible,
1: Steve. And I am encouraged by exactly this feature of the pandemic. It's become unmistakable. To those of us who can work remotely, who can work from home, who can hold meetings on Zoom, it's become unmistakable how deeply we depend on workers we often overlook. And this could be the starting point and opening for a broader public debate about how to bring into better alignment the rewards people get and the importance of the work they do. We assume too easily that the money people make is the measure of their contribution to the common good. This comes from four decades of having outsourced our moral judgment about what really is a valuable contribution to, the, to markets. I think we should reclaim that moral judgment for democratic citizens and reason together right at the heart of our public debate about what social roles are truly important and should be rewarded more, and what social roles may be overvalued by the market. And I'm thinking, for example, of certain certain higher reaches of speculative finance, derivatives, trading, that kind of thing, that are hugely, lavishly rewarded, but whose contribution to the real economy and to the common good, to put it gently, could be questioned
0: well in our last minute and a half here i'm not going to get all michael douglas in wall street on you and say greed is good but i will ask you whether or not a society that is not committed to merit can still be a society that is committed to excellence
1: well i i'm not against a society that is not committed to merit or to excellence uh, i suppose what i'm challenging is the idea of merit as defined by the market. I think that the verdict of the market on who's meritorious, on who's really making valuable contributions, is open to question. We should not accept it uh, and take it for granted. And we should certainly not consider that those at the top who enjoy society's greatest rewards uh, sh- should assume that they deserve all of the benefits that flow from the exercise of their talents. I mean, LeBron James, to take a concrete example, is a great basketball player. But is it his doing that he is gifted in the way that he is? Is it his doing that he lives in a society that happens to, to love basketball? Uh, and I think all of us, all of us should ask uh, this question uh, about the rewards that we enjoy, and looking across the society at the pattern of rewards and social recognition, and ask what really does count as a contribution to the common good? Who deserves what and why? What do we owe to our fellow citizens? Because in in this way, I think we can reach, Steve, for a politics of the common good that can can begin to move away from the tyranny of merit toward a less rancorous, more generous public life.
0: Your publisher will be happy that you said the title of the book and will be even happier that I'm about to repeat it. The tyranny of merit, what's become of the common good? Uh, Professor Michael Sandel from Harvard, um, I have no hesitation saying it. You are our favorite philosopher around here and we're always delighted when you spare some time for our viewers on TVO. Thanks so much and be well during this pandemic.